0: Now, for more than 60 years, North America's longest-serving national national television news anchor told us the kind of day it's been. And I tried to practice that voice. (laughs) Today, we are delighted to have this broadcast news icon with us as he receives the Lifetime Achievement Award. Lloyd Robertson, journalist, broadcaster, editor, anchor. He's had a life lived telling stories, whether it's the moon landing, John F. Kennedy's assassination, political elections across the land, tragedies such as the Montreal massacre and 9-11, or happier occasions, royal weddings and Olympic victories. He was chief anchor and senior editor of CTV News and the name behind Canada's most-watched national newscast. He's the longest-serving news anchor in history, 60 years in broadcasting and 35 of those at CTV. Last year, at the tender age of 77, he signed off from his role as chief anchor, but of course he's not retired. He remains on the air, he can be seen on the documentary series W5, and he still does project work with CTV News. Today, we join many others in honouring Mr. Robertson for his exemplary broadcast career. He's an officer of the Order of Canada, he's been voted Canada's favourite anchor many times over. He's a three-time Gemini Award winner, and his star can be found on Canada's Walk of Fame. With his recently released autobiography, The Kind of Life It's Been, we get a rare glimpse of his career lived both in front and behind the camera. And to help help us learn more about this wonderful life, we're delighted to welcome another Canadian broadcast icon, Brian Williams, also a recipient of the Order of Canada, the host of 14 Olympic Games, and most importantly, a good friend of Mr. Robertson's for over 40 years. Um, Brian is going to join me just just a moment to say a few words about his friends um, and then we'll be proceed with a conversation between the two of them um, this is an unprecedented opportunity for all of us to ask questions of the person who's usually doing the asking so you'll all see on your tables a question card so if you would like to give Mr. Williams a question to ask Mr. Robertson um, we'd encourage you to write it on the card, put, uh, raise your hand a volunteer will collect it and bring it to the stage Um, Now, before I invite uh, Susan MacArthur from the Canadian Club to present Mr. Robertson with his Lifetime Achievement Award, I would like to invite Brian Williams to the stage to say just a few words about his friend. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Alison. Uh, Prime Minister Turner, ladies and gentlemen. In my industry, I've met a lot of talented people. I don't think I've ever met a great broadcaster that combines great ability, with integrity, decency, and above all, humility. And that certainly describes my friend and colleague of more than 40 years, Lloyd Robertson. Back in the early 1970s, and I'm dating myself, when I was a young rookie sportscaster at CBC, I did the 6 o'clock sports Monday to Friday, and Thursday and Friday I also did the 11 o'clock sports, so I would stay downtown for dinner. And I can remember one night, you know, I'm I'm new to the business. Uh, Here's an icon uh, anchoring the National. He would take me under his wing and take me to the studio restaurant on uh, Church Street. Uh, We'd have, I think, hot, hot meatloaf sandwiches or with gravy was his favorite. And he would talk to me about broadcasting. After I left CBC, I'd been there 32 years to join CTV TSN six years ago, June. I remember like it was yesterday. Rick Brace uh, was there. I walked out. He and Yvonne Fetsan introduced me on the stage of the Hummingbird Center, and I said, uh, "Now I have the chance to work with my idol, Lloyd Robertson." And the first show we did together was the arrival of the Olympic flame in Victoria. And this speaks to Lloyd. Before we're going on the air, I'll never forget. I said, "Number one, it's been an honor to work. It's an honor to work with you." And he said, "No, no, no. I'm number two. You're number one when it comes to Olympics. So this began a great argument that has lasted for many, many years. <laughs> Speaking of the Olympics, uh, we came down to the hotel lobby. I know it's in the book. It was about noon. We were on the air, I think, at uh, 4 o'clock uh, Pacific, 7 o'clock uh, Eastern, and we heard that the Georgian loser, and they're laughing about the times. Do you know why I give the time at the Olympics and the smart Alex at the Air Force? My good friends all show Brian Williams with 10 watches. <laughs> it's... It's quite simple folks. It's because we're on the air live halfway around the world in the middle of the night at maybe 7 o'clock in Nova Scotia, 6 o'clock in Toronto, so it's a point of reference. Anyhow, we come down to the lobby of the hotel at about noon Pacific, uh, 3 o'clock in Toronto, and we find out the, um, we find out the Georgian loser has died. A great tragedy. The scripts went out the window. We get to the stadium with 65,000 people, the biggest audience in Canadian history, something like 25 million. If I ever thought of being nervous, uh, that ended right away in a a sea of storms. There was an island of tranquility, and believe me, that was my friend Lloyd. I can remember Lloyd, you standing here, Prime Minister Harper about six inches to his right. I've got John Furlong here. We managed to pull it all together, but to watch Lloyd work with the Prime Minister and to guide, believe me, the directors and producers were, uh, were following Lloyd with his calm strength and leadership. Let me just say one final thing about Lloyd. When he went on Canada's Walk of Fame, people have been introduced by special people, but the man that introduced Lloyd Robertson talked about Lloyd as a man he respected, a man he admired, the longest tenured anchor in all of North America, and the man that introduced Lloyd said, all you need to know about Lloyd Robertson, that man was the late great Walter Cronkite.
2: The Canadian Club of Toronto launched the Lifetime Achievement Award last year. Our first recipient was Peter Monk, who was the founder and chairman of Barrett Gold. I had the pleasure of chairing the committee on behalf of the board that chooses the awards for the Canadian Club, and I thought I'd just talk a little bit about the process that we use to select our fine recipient this year, Lloyd Robertson. We select, we receive nominations from all the board members. It's very much a collaborative process, and then the committee sits down and goes through the names and has a very rigorous debate about who we think should be the recipient of the award this year so it's a competitive process (laughs) and um, all the Canadians that uh, were nominated were outstanding Canadians but we Truly felt that you were a very deserving recipient this year for your inspiration and leadership to Canadians. So it gives me my great pleasure to present you the Lifetime Achievement Award on behalf of the Board of Directors of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And I'd like to ask Jamie Watt and Alison Loat to come up here and help me present the award this year. Come Come on over here, we'll do some pictures.
0: Thank you very much, Susan, and please join us in congratulating Mr. Robertson. And it will just be a brief moment as we change over the stage, and then the fun will begin.
3: Thank you, Alison. uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm just going to take a moment to say how much I really do appreciate this award. Thank you so much. It could not have come from a more renowned Canadian organization, 160 years old, 116 years old, and you have been the platform from which the eloquence of Canada has flowed all of that time, whether it be business, education, politics, sports, arts and culture. If someone wants to say something to Canadians about this country and about the future of this country, this is the venue you choose. And that's why I was thrilled to be honored with this award. And when I was called about it uh, last June, I literally couldn't wait for the day, because uh, it means so very much to me. This country has really kind of seeped into my bones through the years. And uh, I, I, I hope you understand that when I, when you read this book. And I'm just going to read one little paragraph. Um, when I was in Windsor in 1954, uh, that was very much the metaphor for the elephant and the mouse, because Windsor was a tiny place uh, in those days, uh, still is in the shadow of Detroit, but not so much anymore. But back then, before the riots in Detroit, Detroit was this large colossus that loomed over the much tinier Windsor. And uh, I remember we were all drawn to the glitter of Detroit, gl- drawn to the glitter and glory, as they tell say, of, of the American dream. And... Uh, I I thought, you know, a couple of times about, oh, wouldn't it be great to work at WJR Detroit? And it never happened. I uh, went over there. We did a radio show called What's New, which was broadcast on CJBC. It was a uh, Dominion Network radio show. And uh, I'd go over and get the records from the DECA store in uh, Detroit and then bring them back and play them on the Windsor radio station. Uh, So... uh, When the opportunity to break into television arrived, instead of going south, I decided to go west. And that really left behind, for me, a lot of the glitter and glamour and the natural magnetic attraction of going to work in the United States. And that's when this country began to seep into my bones. And it was kind of an unconscious decision because I wasn't even aware of it. I took the job in Winnipeg, and I remember uh, that day... Uh when I got on the train, it was the middle of winter, in fact it was uh the end of December, early January, and going from Windsor to Winnipeg, it's a very long ride, of course, in those days was about three days. And I talk about it in, in the beginning of one of the chapters. As the CN train rolled north and west through the winter countryside, the snow got deeper, the nights darker. The days were often bright with the sun casting luminous reflections off of the crystal-white snow, and on the clear, brisk winter nights, the moon provided pools of light through the dark, bare forest and across the crusted snow of the open plains. There were quick stops at little places with vaguely familiar names like Hearst and Cochran in northern Ontario. After three days and three nights, the train began to slow for its arrival in Winnipeg and finally pulled to a stop just after eight in the morning at the railway station at the forks of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers. And that was the beginning, really, for me, of my falling in love with Canada, that train ride from Windsor through Ontario, up north to Winnipeg, seeing the prairies, understanding the kind of country we were becoming. Uh, This was 1956. We were on the cusp of great moments. And I was able to follow Canada's history from that time forward. And I've had so much fun, and I'm so grateful who have been able to stay here and grow up with my country, because it took me through 1967, and uh, and I've just had a great time. And I think that's reflected in the book. I know that um, the format today is questions and answers, and we're going to be getting to that in a second. But uh, there's a section in the book on frequently asked questions. I don't think I've marked it, so I'm going to have trouble finding There we are. Um, and I just wanted to preempt one question, all right? I'm going to usurp you on this one, because the single... Most frequently asked question was, who's doing the news tonight? Believe it or not, that came from everywhere, all over the place. And one time, Nancy and I were in Venice, Italy, in a gondola going under a bridge. Someone yelled, who's doing the news tonight? (laughs) Over the bridge. And this is the power of television. We recounted that story last Saturday in an item Kevin Newman was doing on W5 with me. About an hour later, I get an email from Anton Koschini, who's the producer of W5. He's here today. Anton says, look at this. It was from a gentleman who said, I am the jerk who shouted at you over the bridge in Winnipeg. All those years ago. Now, I didn't call him a jerk. He He called himself a jerk because he went on to say that his daughter was mortified. And then he went on to apologize for any... Embarrassment he caused me. Anyway, um, thank you again for the award. I really appreciate it. It's great to see my old friend, former Prime Minister John Turner, here today, Donald MacDonald, and so many other people I've come to know through the years of uh, just bopping around the country and having a good time. It's been fun. And uh, now I will turn it back to Ryan. Yes, (laughs) Ryan. Are you ready, number one? I always am numero uno, he's numero uno.
1: I I got to tell you about this number one because Wendy Freeman, the Vice President of News, Rick uh, Bryce, uh, President of Digital and Production, uh, every night around 11.30, he'd get off the news in Vancouver, I would have been on the air for eight hours we'd meet at the hotel we'd have a glass of uh... Sher- no it was conundrum i would never forget the wine and uh, we would argue as, as to who was number two i mean it was not who was number one wendy's laughing but i would say number one he'd say no number two And uh, so we're ready for questions and i must i don't know about you people but uh, an image in my mind of lloyd playing the hits in windsor is, is not, <laughs> not, not something i imagine. there's a woman here who I have great admiration for, who submitted this question. I'll give you her name in just a minute. Lloyd, you've written a quote, tell almost all book. What can you share with us that's not in the book? And remember, uh. there are cameras. The question is from Lloyd's longtime co anchor, and you want to know who's doing the news, Sandy Ronaldo. Sandy!
3: Stand up and be recognized, darling. Sandy Ronaldo, everybody. All right, well, let let me answer that question by saying this, all right? Uh, What I've tried to do with this is be straight up, be honest, uh, but also to put things in perspective at the end. Because I tried to deal with, you know, the CBC to CTV move, which was very controversial at the time. Very, very big media event, surprised me in that respect. And I couldn't believe that a move of an anchor from one network to another would be such a big deal. But the time was different then. It was 1976. CBC was this huge organization. And I'm moving over to the private sector. And I'm doing it because, and and people came to believe this after a time, but for a while I was painted as a mercenary grabbing bucks and uh, didn't care about news or radio or television or anything like that. I was just in it for the money. But after a while, people began to realize that what I was saying about wanting to be more involved in the editorial process for the news was what was very important. And I know I'm not answering your question directly, uh, Sandy, <laughs> um, because there is stuff I've had to leave out, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but what I've done is, is try to present a story that is honest but also in character in the sense that, um, you know, you look at those battles and you go back and you say this too shall pass and you get over it because life is a long road and and I've had a wonderful career and uh what's in the book uh is a, a lot of material some of which would be new for people but uh, you know the stories you and I are talking about they're not in the book you know what they'll never see the light of the day <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted to
1: test the water <laughs> <laughs> um Here's another question. You have, people see you at 11 o'clock and Nancy's here, you have four daughters. Uh, I know what it's like to be away from home. Can you talk to being away and really never having dinner with your family for 50, 60 years? I'm not sure people realize Lloyd would be in mid-afternoon. And some nights, there until 3 in the morning, there's the time again, Pamela Wallen, to, uh, to uh, update British Columbia. If there's a breaking story here, he just doesn't you know leave at 11.30, uh, whether it's uh, Lisa or whoever. Uh, you have to stay. Can you talk to the
3: sacrifices? Yes, uh, thank you, Brian. There was, there's a chapter in the book, actually. Uh, and it was the idea of the editor from HarperCollins. I hadn't really thought about this. And he said, Lloyd, write something about your day. I said, right about my day, why would anybody be interested in that? He said, well, I think people don't have the understanding that you're in there from 3 in the afternoon until midnight and perhaps beyond most days because they see you at 11 o'clock local time. So uh, I thought about it, sat down, and I recreated a kind of day, uh, a typical editorial meeting day with Wendy and I starting off. I say on bad days, Wendy has a T too, and uh, starts off with me saying, uh, no screw-ups that I can Recall from last night, boss, and she says, "Yes, but there were too many talking heads coming out of Ottawa. There should have been more real people." Uh, and this was the kind of typical discussion we had at the beginning of those days. But those days started at three, uh, editorial meeting 3:30, little break for dinner, often home, trying to get home uh, between six and seven. Uh, otherwise, it was into the canteen for you know that kind of food, and uh, and then uh, it would be for the rest of the night: the writing, the editing, the process of putting the news together. And then two shows, one at 10, live, to the east for 11 o'clock in the Maritimes and 11.30 in Newfoundland, Brian. And and on news channel, direct right across the country. And then often beyond that, if we had a breaking story, like uh, the night um, of the plane crash in Nova Scotia, we did five shows that night, uh, right up until uh, 2.30 in the morning. And uh, this would happen frequently enough when you had big stories moving, which would affect your newscast in the West. You couldn't put that show to bed until it was over. So what this meant, working every night, first at CBC for six years, then at CTV for 35 years, a total of 41 at 11 o'clock at night, meant that I missed a lot with my kids. And I came to regret that. So after um, a time, after I became more confident in the job, more sure of what I was doing, felt they weren't going to, kill me off, you know, two days later because I made some little mistake, uh, I began to uh, realize that this was something I had to work on now. And I began to develop a better relationship. Uh, Nancy has been a rock all through this, by the way. She has been, she has, she has stood by me all the way. Uh, but the difficulty for me was not Nancy so much as it was the girls who didn't understand why dad wasn't around for some of this, you know, or the concerts at high school some nights. I tried to make them but much of the time I was just not there. I came to realize that that very important part of your life is what really counts. So I have been, I've spent the last several years now rebuilding relationships with my daughters and we are very close now and, and that, for that I am really grateful. But it, it is a tough grind uh, all those years, all those nights. So I think you understand. At the age of 77, I said I'd like a little bit of a break now, please. So, uh, so last year I, I uh, said goodbye to it all. Uh, but it was a wonderful run. Do I miss it? Uh, some days, when a big news story is going, I say, "Oh God, I wish I were there." You know, I'm sitting at home watching it. I wish I were there. Uh, but after a while, you reach the conclusion that you know there comes a time in your life. Uh, uh, The book Passages I read many years ago, someone recommended it to me when I moved from CBC to CTV. Things roll along with your life and you just have to adapt yourself, Uh, which is what I've had to do on several different occasions. And now I come to this different passage and I'm moving on. Thank you.
1: Lloyd is from Stratford, Ontario, right Nancy? Um, I'm born in Winnipeg and it's good to see that he started in Winnipeg because that's where most successful people begin their careers. (laughs) Um, Leading to this question from Eric, uh, do you think your path to anchor could be replicated today?
3: Uh, No, uh, certainly not as quickly as I did it, Uh, definitely not. Because today there's so much competition. I mean, when I, when I started, remember, we had basically two networks, CBC and CTV, for many, many years. And um, I got there uh, partly because I learned television by doing it. As I was saying to some of the young people here earlier, there were no schools to teach you anything in those days. There were no journalism schools. There were no television schools. There, when I started in 1954, there was one course going on at uh, Ryerson called Radio Arts, that's all there was. And if you were coming into broadcasting, you learned from the ground up. You just did it. That's all. So you put up with the hot kleeg lights and the running makeup and the lipstick even then had to put on, because otherwise you'd look like a ghost under those hot lights. Uh, I did all of that, and I learned by doing. But I also watched how the real pros were doing things and learned a lot of that as I went along, too. Uh, but there was a chance for those of us in those days to make our mistakes. Because everybody was making mistakes, we were learning it as we went along. Young people today don't have that chance. They have to come to a broadcast organization with some kind of piece of paper in their hands—a certificate, a diploma, whatever you—and uh, they have to start and be as good as they can possibly be right away. That didn't matter. Well, it was important in our days to, you know, do it well. Uh, the only thing about about our day, as opposed to now, is that it was a very Darwinian weeding out process. I mean, you could either do it or you didn't, and it was very clear early on who could do it and who couldn't do it. Nowadays, uh, everybody is supposed to do it well first time out, or you may not have a second chance. So when young people ask about what do I do, I have to go back to the, the old maxim I've given them. Go to the boonies first, get your start, get comfortable with the business, then try to come to the larger centers.
1: You may have answered this next question, and I think it's from one of the uh, young people over here, but it, maybe it's the technical aspect, I'm not sure, but how has journalism changed in the years since, you've started, since you started your career?
3: Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, we only read press releases from governments back in those days. We didn't ask any questions, my goodness. Prime, Prime Minister Turner's a- smiling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> press... Press releases, uh, very few news conferences, um, not very many questions, Uh, and of course everything changed uh, as the demands of television grew. I mean, television really did change the climate for everybody, certainly those of us who worked in the business, but the politicians, the academics, this whole country was changed with the advent of TV. And uh, nowadays, of course... Uh, It's changing yet again. We are in the midst of another revolution with the Internet, with Twitter, with Facebook, Wikipedia, all of that. But um, from my own point of view, and this is just the way I see it, uh, people will still go for their reliable sources. They may read Twitter and they may pick up the gossip and may enjoy all of that. But I think when it comes to what they really want to know, they'll go to the people they trust, they'll go to the organizations they've grown up with and are familiar with, and know that those organizations have professional standards. And in news, that's about fairness, and that's about balance, and that's about professionalism. And I don't think that will ever go away. I hope not. I know that some gurus are now saying, Brian, people don't care where they get their news. Don't agree with that. I think they do. I think they get what they think is news in some places, but they appreciate that it's really gossip. And they come back. the reliable sources. And I quote in the book, as a matter of fact, a survey, a recent one by a Canadian media consortium that says um, uh, one in ten people, um, only one in ten people get their real news, what they consider their real news, from the Internet. Uh, Nine (coughs) others choose reliable sources like the regular mainstream networks.
1: All right. Let's let's run through these. We're we'll yes, trying to I'll use go. many as Am I I going to. No, math, you're fine. You're fine. you're fine. This is your show. She you told me you know?
3: not to go on too long with some of these answers.
1: Okay. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> um, interesting question with John Turner here. Uh, who is your favorite prime minister and why?
3: <laughs> oh boy. Thanks a lot. <laughs> you know what? I do a bit of a cop out on this one, which I, I know John Turner will appreciate. Because my most vivid memory of interviewing Prime Ministers was the interview I did with Lester B. Pearson in 1967. Uh, I had met John Diefenbaker, and we would had a few encounters in hallways, but my first sit-down interview was with Lester B. Pearson. And he came into the studio at Expo 67 with his jacket slung over his shoulder, and he said, hey, Lloyd, how's your rotten management? And I thought, what's he talking Oh, and I knew immediately what he was talking about. Because Judy DeMarche, who was the Heritage Minister, and you'll remember all this, Mr. Turner. Judy DeMarche had been talking about, quite publicly, uh, CBC's rotten management, as she called it, in respect of their handling of the seven days crisis uh, at the CBC at the time, and everybody in this room, I think, knows something about that. Uh, So he broke the ice immediately, totally disarmed me. I laughed, he laughed, he sat down, we chatted. And I have always thought of that man as being um, probably the quintessential prime minister because he was a man who, he wasn't, he wasn't devoutly partisan in any way that I could see. Uh, he looked at the broader picture. He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, of course. Uh, he was also a man of, of uh, substance and depth who, didn't, uh, who, who understood what, what had to happen in the country to move it forward back in 1967. He understood that uh, Quebec nationalism could be a very potent force if allowed to grow on its own and germinate there in Quebec. So that's why he went out and and got into his cabinet. People like uh, Gerard Peltier, Jean Marchand, and of course the one who went the furthest of all, Pierre Trudeau. And then we know about Trudeau mania in 1968. He uh, he really was instrumental in bringing us the Canadian flag. So I, I think that being my first prime ministerial interview is the one I remember the most, and uh, when people ask this question, that's where I go. This man, John Turner, and I have had a long relationship, and God bless him. When he finished as Liberal leader, he called me and said, "Let's go for lunch because you've always been fair to us." That was a great compliment, uh, and and we've been pals ever since, and we see each other occasionally, and I really enjoy his company. I thought.
1: I thought Prime Minister Turner he stick handled that just like a politician. It was, it was very, very well
3: done.
1: <laughs> well, he's from Stratford, Ontario. That's where hockey started. Um, we have uh, students here from St. Patrick. Is it St. Pat's uh, Catholic uh, High School? Um, they've been providing many of the questions, and this is one I'm sure from your table. Lloyd, what is the best advice or bit of inspiration you would like to impart to the younger generation, the future of the media?
3: Well, if you're going into media, I'd say uh, be sure that you, are, you have a curious mind because journalism is a wonderful venue for learning how the world works. Uh, in fact, that's what sort of happened to me. I was a kid coming out of high school, didn't know much, if anything at all, uh, when I started in, at the age of 18 at CJCS in Stratford. But with access to so much meeting so many people and being around the country so much, talking to people, learning every day, and that's what you have to do. It's fine to get your degree and get going, but when you get into the business, keep learning, keep growing, because uh, the, full, uh, the full capacity of your knowledge will be used within your career as you move on. And as you grow up and you get older... Um, you'll become more knowledgeable and you'll become um, a better source for people to go to for the real information. I mean, you know now you probably all have reporters uh, at the various networks and writers at the various papers you respect and respond to when they write or say something. These are people who thought about growing up with the industry but growing up with life and learning about the world because that's what journalism does.
1: It's a good question. I'm not sure where it comes from. It's an outstanding question. Have you ever had a story that was difficult for you to break, whether it was because of your own morals or a bias you may not have been able to get rid of? It's a great question.
3: Well, the story that really made me angry, and I mentioned this in the book, was the Montreal massacre in nineteen eighty nine. Because this was the killing of young women at a call Polytechnique in Montreal for no other reason than that they wanted to do what men had been doing traditionally. They wanted to go into engineering. And Mark Lepine decided that um, they didn't deserve to exist, in his view. And, of course, most of you here remember the rest of that story, the Montreal Massacre. And that night, I had a terrible time, because I was so angry about this. Because we had taught our daughters, Nancy and I had said to our daughters, Go with your bliss. Do what you want to do. Do what you feel is inside you. And um, they all did. And here was someone who was going to deny these young women where they wanted to go just because they were women. And I get get angry and choked out about that story, even now. And we had to go on the air all evening and, and give bulletins. And I remember at the end of the night, I was totally exhausted by the time I got home. That one really affected me. It was very difficult to report on.
1: All right. Not a lot of time. I'll go quickly. Uh, Who was the big get you never got Uh but wished you had? (laughs) That's
3: a good question. Uh, Well, there actually were quite a few big gets I never got. I guess, uh, and I'm looking at Rick Brace here, uh, the big get that we tried when I was over at the Olympics um, uh, in uh, uh, Torino was Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> uh, however, in, in, from my, from my in my world, the big get I didn't get was Barack Obama. Uh, in uh, when in, a couple of years ago.
1: You ever thought of being a sportscaster?
3: As a matter of fact, you know that I did Olympics early on. Mm-hmm. In 1976,
1: you may not know this. Lloyd hosted the Olympics along with the late, or not late, he's still alive, the great Ernie Afghanas, friend Eric Brace's. So. Uh, the reason I ask that is the question is, if you hadn't chosen journalism, what other career would have interested you?
3: Well, Brian mentions the sports, and, and I think sports is a great area uh, because uh, the stories are so wonderful and yeah. dramatic and so moving, many of them. And, and it's great for news people to have that experience once in a while, and I was gr- very grateful to be able to cover the Olympics because there are stories everyone can relate to, these young people striving to be the best they can possibly be on the world stage. Living with disappointment, Brian, as you know. Uh, So often seeing the glory of of their situation develop for them. Um, But um, I guess... um, Would you uh, be a teacher? Would you be a businessman? Well, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about that. I think probably what I would have done uh, was go into the ministry, which uh, I was thinking about early on. Uh, That's the only other thing that ever interested me early. Uh, but I didn't feel the, the call to go into the church full-time and I got interested in radio and there we are, and I think I made the right call.
1: This, this, this is a personal question. People asked about the changes. To me, it's a lot of it's a technology. Uh, people understand this, but you have a great ability to go live. I mean, there's more live today than there was in the past. Uh, he was great at the opening of the Paralympics, a great friend of the Fox family. I want to ask you about that in just a minute. but. Talk to me about the ability to go live, how it has all changed, and how now we can get pictures. I know Pam Wallen is here back, uh, not to date Pam, but we were talking. There were times when you had to bring everything in on videotape, but now it's live, live, live. And to Lloyd's credit, his final election was probably his best, so he is the expert ongoing live. Can you talk to me about how it's changed, how there's more lives than ever before?
3: Well, Brian, you probably know the answers to this as well as I do. Uh, I think you have to be a little bit schizophrenic sometimes. <laughs> to deal with what's coming at you in those situations because you're listening to someone saying go here next do this now and you're in the middle of saying something and you suddenly have to change course and you have to find a way of doing that smoothly as we say in television so that you don't upset the audience um, i guess I, I just learned that craft very early by watching others do it well like cronkite in the u.s fred davis who did front page challenge here in canada he was a master of the television medium for a long, long time. And I watched him and how smooth he was, uh, breaking up the sparring sometimes between Gordon Sinclair and Pierre Burton. And he always handled it with the audience in mind. That is, what are they thinking about this? In the back of my mind, what are they thinking about this? And I tried to do the same thing. try to say, all right, they're seeing this picture in that narrow box, and some days there were very small boxes, uh, so what are they thinking about this as they're watching? So you're trying to walk them through this event and not, and you're trying not to be overpowered by the event as you're doing that because, uh, you know, it's very easy in television to get stopped by the technology, by the lights, by all that equipment that surrounds you. So you always have to reach out and try to connect. Uh, with, as uh, Steve Brody, the old supervisor broadcast language at the CBC said, you have to imagine you're talking to three or four people at one time out there in the living room. So I always tried to imagine that. That was the way I moved forward with the vision of it all.
1: I don't think there's a story involving Canadians over the last 50 years that Lloyd is not anchored. I know you were especially close. Uh, we both know the Fox family very well, Terry Fox can you pick one story maybe two stories that that stand out in your mind more than any after sixty years in the business that you covered?
3: well there was the cherry fox story certainly that touched me quite deeply because i came to know the family um, but i was telling one of the young people here earlier about that night in nineteen ninety five october nineteen ninety five when we almost lost the country yeah. because let's not kid ourselves the separatists were talking about sovereignty association we knew that would be Jacques Perizeau would be going for independence the next day. And we came that close. That close. And Craig Oliver said to me, I remember him calling me five minutes before the broadcast, he said, Lloyd, I'm scared as hell. I think we're going down. I really do. And he and I had come to love this country because we'd covered it for so long. It had seeped into our consciousness and into our bones. And I remember thinking that um, I, was, I was on the edge of the seat Trying to be calm all through that first hour that night when the yes side was winning in favor of of sovereignty association, uh, and there was this huge relief on the part of all of us when uh, you know we eked out a no win we they uh, the country eked out a no win uh, and that's a night that sticks in my memory for all time. We looked over the precipice that night and we were able to step back and I sincerely hope we never have to go there again personally, I don't think we will have to go there again all right.
1: Got four or five questions, uh, four or five minutes. Let me go very quickly. I want to save one for last. Um, uh, specific quality that you believe has helped you during
3: your career. Specific quality? Yes. Uh, probably being a quick, quick study uh, was the most specific quality because you have to. Sometimes you have to amass a lot of information very quickly pick out the detail and you would know this Brian the detail of your research and decide what it is that's important to people and get it out there
1: very quickly to the people you know going on the air sometimes the easiest thing we do It's it's the preparation I don't think people Mm -hmm. realize that Mm -hmm. do they Uh, talk to me just briefly well
3: uh, let me use the example of the day and 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 Brian was great to work with on this day and you mentioned it when we had to drive to the stadium from the hotel knowing that the georgian luger had just been killed and how are we going to handle this in terms of that broadcast because we knew that the Canadians would be presenting a ceremony uh... with um, uh, outlining the history of the country and how great we were presenting ourselves to the world and yet we had this tragedy on the opening day and i remember you coming into the makeup room when i was sitting in there and said Lloyd we're going to tackle this head on he just talked to the producer and they decided that's what we're going to do and we sat out there, and or we stood out there actually, uh, with Katrina Levedon on one side. She spoke for the athletes. Uh, I simply said, you know, these things. This is life uh, crashing in upon us. It's raw. Uh, we have to stop and pause. I said something like this: We have to stop and pause and try to move forward because that's what the young people here are doing. That's what we'll have to do. And I said, I say in the book, as a matter of fact, that I really like working with Brian because he understood what we had to do. He understood that we had to make this right for the audience. They were there in order to watch the show in a kind of setting that they would appreciate the country, but also be knowledgeable of what had happened.
1: Trust me, I learned from standing next to him, number one. There are, <laughs> <Number> um, <uno. laughs> there, there are students in the room, uh, This writing here, the question is for the young students at St. Uh, at Pat's, social media good or bad for news?
3: Uh, Social media ultimately uh, will be good for news. Uh, We get a lot of source information from social media, but don't count on it for the news because it's not there yet. It may never be. Great for gossip, great for um, digging up sources for us, but that's what it is. It's It's a communication tool.
1: Second to last question, penultimate question. What important lessons have you learned Throughout your career,
3: I, I guess the most important lesson I've learned is to is to try to be um, understanding that you know we are not stars, we are communicators, uh, and uh, we owe the audience the the um, the understanding that that we're just guys on the street trying to do the job the best way we can do it, just the way they do their jobs. Because in order to be an effective communicator and relate to people, I think you have to relate from the reality of your own consciousness. And that's where I've tried to stand all these years. Just there, as a guy who's an observer, doing my best.
1: Let me just add this, because as, as I look at Pam Wallen, I see, you see Sandy, you have four daughters, I have three daughters. The change in anchors, they're no longer white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed males. Uh, is this one of the great, I mean... It used to be almost based on looks and the, and the color of your skin. Now it's based on ability more than anything. Is, is that fair to say?
3: Well, it's about time, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and Sandy, you have been a trailblazer in this area. I mean, Sandy's done Pam? national news in this country for a long time. Pam? And Pam, yeah. uh, Pam, of course, came along uh, when Sandy was doing the news on Canada AM at the time. And Pam was an immediate hit because here was somebody who could ask the tough questions in that charming manner and, uh, and she could uh, get to some of those politicians because she how to ask the question when they'd be trying to wiggle off the hook. And, um, and she really did. Pam crashed through a lot of glass ceilings. First bureau chief of a national network in Ottawa. Uh, she then um, uh, anchored, she was the, the anchor for primetime news on the CBC, her own show there, and when that ended, Pam didn't stop. The next day, she was Canadian consul in New York. She's fantastic, and she's an example of how women can move forward, not just in in all areas. To me, to me, the, 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 the number of women we have working now in our industry is a great thing, because uh, they bring a special quality to it that you know some men can't bring frankly,
1: women and minorities. Here's the last question and uh, the quality that defines Lloyd I think you would agree with me I would say is humility. This is a great question. I'm reading it verbatim. So what do you want to say about the future of the country?
3: I think we're here as one country for a very long time because I really do believe that, um, that people feel a passion about this place now When they see the Canadian flag, when they see the red maple leaf, they feel it. And it's that gut. And I know that that applies to Quebec as well. Even in 1994, when I interviewed Lucien Bouchard, who was speaking at the Canadian Club, and we went out afterwards into one of those little rooms, I asked him that question. Do you and your people ever feel passionate about Canada? Do you feel an emotional connection to it? And he said, yes, I have to admit that some do uh... and uh, and i said well how does that apply to what you're trying to do he said that will be a problem and i've never forgotten that and i think it's going to be more of a problem now because more people have decided this is the place they want to be certainly the place where i want to be and i'm very <laughs> glad to have had a career here met so many wonderful people the vancouver
1: yes The Vancouver Olympics changed our country. We're no longer apologizing for excellence. We're not afraid to stand up and beat our chests and say, you know what, this is a pretty good place to live. I've had a career of more than 40 years. The highlight for me was working the Vancouver Olympics with a Canadian icon. My friend, congratulations. Thank
3: you, Brian. Thank you so much. That was great. You were great. That was
1: great. Uh, Prime Minister, friends all, uh, Lloyd and Brian, uh, thanks uh, for being here today, for sharing your stories, and perhaps more importantly, for charming us. It was, uh, it was a treat to listen to you both. Lloyd, you spoke about the importance of editing and participating in the news process yourself, and I think that that actually leads us to what we are all particularly thankful to Lloyd Robertson for. Uh, over his career... He earned the place as a trusted source for news, something that he not only earned, but he maintained. He talked about social media and the increasing amount of bombarding we are getting from news. It's not something, I think, that will be replaced again. And so that's something that you have not only our thanks in this room today, but you have the thanks of a nation. Thanks very much for being here.
0: I would, on behalf of the Canadian Club and all of you, I would like to thank um, both Lloyd and Brian for what I felt was a very special conversation, and I feel very privileged to have been a part of it. Thank you. Um, Thank you also, Wendy, and to all your colleagues at Bell Media for supporting and sponsoring this event as well. Um, This does conclude formally our television programming, uh, which will be broadcast uh, in the days to come. Um, Thank you all very much. We hope you will come again to the Canadian Club. I know many of you have been before, and we'd love to see you again. Um, I was struck at the beginning, uh, Lloyd, by your comment that the Canadian Club is the most eloquent podium, I believe you said, in Canada, and I think you've proven that uh, today. So thank you for being here. Thank you all of us for joining us and today's meeting is formally adjourned. Have a nice afternoon.